So who here watched the Packers 2018 season opener against the Bears? Who watched it live? 2018. Bears were up 10-0 second quarter. Aaron Rodgers gets sacked, goes down. He's grabbing his knee, goes to the sideline, ends up getting carted off, taken into the locker room. Less than two quarters in, and fans are worried their whole season is over. Maybe you remember that now. Going into halftime down 17 to nothing. I know some of you well enough to know that your homes were, to put it kindly, not the most pleasant places to be at that point. I was in one of them. <laughs> Our first year here watching Packers games. So. But then there was some good news. Come out of the half and then Rodgers has his helmet on, right, on the sidelines. He ends up playing in the second half. There's this sigh of relief. This game's done, but at least our season's not over. But then you go from being down 20 to 3 going into the fourth quarter to a 75-yard Randall Cobb touchdown with just over two minutes left to take the lead and win the game. How about the nerves and emotions watching a game like that? You go from excitement about this season to just total despair. Then a little bit of relief to maybe a glimmer of hope to just exuberance, the ups and downs of it. But imagine you uh, weren't able to watch the game live, so you're going to watch it later, right? And you're always like, don't tell me what happens. But someone does, like they do, and you uh, end up here watching the highlights then, you see the box score. You already know what happens, so then when you watch the game later, you don't go through these waves of emotion, those things that expose that you probably care a little bit too much about a game with grown men you don't know carrying a ball back and forth. Knowing the outcome changes the way we watch the game. You know he's coming back in. You know they're going to pull it out at the end. But we've got something a little more high stakes than a football game going on in Nehemiah here. The protection and the preservation of God's people in Jerusalem. This wall around Jerusalem, their primary source of protection is in ruins. Leaving God's people very vulnerable to real enemies. But before going through the ups and downs of rebuilding, it, we, we kind of get this box score. I'm not going to read through it this morning. You can read it later. I didn't want to butcher all the names. But in chapter 3, we get this summary of the wall being completely built around the city. It being brought to completion. And we get this beautiful picture of all the people that contribute. There's 41 different families and groups listed there in chapter 3 that all played their part. Interestingly, the one name you might expect, Nehemiah, isn't even mentioned. It's this beautiful picture of God's people coming together, all doing their part, all playing their role for the accomplishment of God's purposes and for the good of others. And the picture we get is this picture of a faithful God who keeps his promises. 
That's a good question as you're reading through some of the, especially the historical books. What promise has God made that is threatened here? That's usually where the climax or the tension is going to be. God had given them this land, but they'd rebelled against God. They'd worshipped other gods and were exiled. But God hadn't disowned them, even in exile. He hadn't given up on them. And then as we saw beginning with Ezra, in the, in the book of Ezra, he's bringing people back to the land, first with Zerubbabel, who rebuilds the temple, the visible representation of God's presence in the midst of his people. Then a few decades later, Ezra comes back, bringing the law of God. And now Nehemiah comes back to build the wall around the city, where what has already been built and restored is being threatened that's the thing at the beginning of Nehemiah, right? They're in trouble. And God brings about the completion of the wall through the work of his people. The wall is built. The temple and the people are protected. Promises God made to Abraham for his presence, for the land, for the nation are intact. And through this, it leads to the way God promises to bless the nations. The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. God is keeping his promises that he is faithful. So we've seen God's faithfulness in it. Now that we've read this box score, we can watch the game. Knowing the outcome. And then we can see how we should play or live in light of already knowing the final score. So let's hear God's word from Nehemiah 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O oh our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt upon their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you in the, to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able, to complete, be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome 
and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. our God will fight for us so we labored at the work after we held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out I also said to the people at that time let every man and pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by day by night and may labor by day so neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to keep your promises. Help us as we look at your word here. Help us to know more of who you are in your faithfulness and work in us to make us people who live in light of it. God, we ask that your spirit would illumine this to our hearts and minds and that you would conform us more to the image of your son through this time together. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that better? Check, check, check. We'll see. We'll find out in a second. So, technology. Got to love it. So if you're just now joining us, we're getting our mics straightened out. No, um, we are doing that. But we're also continuing on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week, we were introduced to Nehemiah. So he was a Jew still living in exile. He's in Susa. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And he hears about the trouble and the shame of his people back in Jerusalem. The walls and the gates are in shambles. They're in trouble and at risk of being ashamed. They're exposed. So Nehemiah prays to God. What we saw last week, interesting, he prays confession is the first thing that he does. But he goes to the Lord. And then he goes before the king. And he tells him what's going on. And it says, the good hand of our God was on him. And the king gives him everything he asked for. So he comes to Jerusalem to build the wall. And there are these two guys there mentioned in chapter 2. Sanballat and Tobiah come up again here this morning. And they're greatly displeased that someone would come to seek the welfare or the good of the people of Israel. They're utterly opposed to God's people. And his purpose is there. But as I mentioned a little bit ago, we're told in chapter 3 that the wall gets built. We see that God brings to completion the work to which he calls his people. 
So we got that big picture, so now we zoom in and look at some of the details. And we're going to see that what was quickly summarized as an utter success in chapter 3 was a little bit more challenging than we might picture, or we might have had our minds just reading chapter 3. There were obstacles to overcome, that there was opposition that they faced. The question we want to ask ourselves then is, if we know God is going to bring to completion the work to which he calls us, how should we respond when we face opposition? So we begin here with Sanballat, who I just mentioned. He's actually the governor of Samaria, so a man of some power there, the land just to the north. He hears that they're building the wall, and he's ticked. (laughs) He's angry and greatly enraged. I think there are a couple reasons for this. One, he hates God's people, as we saw. He wants no good for the people of Israel. But also, more practically, a strengthened, fortified Jerusalem is a bit of a threat to his power. He's threatened by them, so he starts to taunt them. He's making fun of them. And not just to them, but he's doing it in front of other officials, his brothers, and the army of Samaria. That he's poisoning the well, if you will. That he's trying to tear them down, even mentally, so that they won't even start the work. They're too weak. It'd take a miracle. They'll never finish it. They're going to build their wall out of trash. That's what he's saying to everyone that's around watching. Then you have Tobiah piling on. Yeah, if a fox climbs on it, it'll fall down. I'm not saying it was like this, but I picture Tobiah as like the number two, kind of sucking up to the main guy where he's kind of, he's pandering and agreeing with him. Yeah, fox will break it down. Like you'd expect Dwight Schrute to do to Michael Scott, adding on to his jokes. Like. But what's really sad about Tobiah here, even more so than Sanballat, is that Tobiah should be part of the community. He's relatives with one of the priests. His name is Hebrew, meaning God is good. And yet he's mocking God's people and wanting to thwart his purposes. So how do they respond in the face of jeering and taunts? With prayer. And prayer that we're probably a little bit uncomfortable with. It doesn't fit some of our modern sensibilities, especially if we've never faced severe injustice. We think they're taking it a little hard. It's what we call imprecatory prayer. Prayer that invokes God's judgment against his enemies. They pray that their taunts would be turned back on their own heads. That what they wish for God's people would happen to them. So how should we think about these prayers? I think you'll hear some will argue that they express this sinful hate, that they shouldn't be here. But I don't think that fits well with different uses of imprecatory prayers, especially in the Psalms that are meant to guide God's people in corporate worship. It doesn't fit that they would be sinful in and of themselves. Some would say that they're okay in the Old Testament, but not in the New I don't think that holds because the New Testament doesn't bring about this ethical shift. There's a shift from a nation state to a spiritual people. 
But it expounds upon what has always been God's moral law. God does not change. What he requires of his people does not change. The New Testament also uses some of those imprecatory psalms. And there are things like Paul saying that anyone who preaches another gospel should be accursed. We have things like that similar. So instead of looking at what might be wrong with it or things like that, I think it's better to look at who it's against. People being cursed are utterly wicked. They hate God and they hate his people. They're rebels against God and enemies of his people. So we saw that they want no, no good, no welfare for the people of Israel. And I don't mean rebels and enemies in the sense that we all are apart from Christ. We all are rebels and enemies apart from Christ. But they're actually like intentionally opposing God and his work in the world. They are seeking to destroy. And the curses aren't acts of vengeance. They're not violence. They're expressions of this moral indignation. And they're a request for God to vindicate himself. It says even there that they have provoked you to anger in the presence of these builders. Not even about us. In short, they're a request to see God's justice this side of heaven. For his people to be protected. So I think we're okay using them today, but we need to be very careful about when and if we do. One of my seminary professors, Jack Collins, would give these guidelines for how to think about using imprecations today, especially the Psalms. Recognizing that they are prayer. They're not acts of vengeance. They're conditional. Of course, we'd prefer repentance. Psalm 86 is especially clear, or 83 is especially clear on that. After these curses against the people, it says that they might be ashamed and turn to you. That's what we want. They're not personal. They're not against you as who you are. They're because you're completely opposed to God. And they're official, that they're corporate. They're not private curses. You see that here, even you don't have Nehemiah praying. It's hear our prayer. It's all plural there. Do it. So there are times, but we need to be careful with cursing others. So while it's good and right to use them appropriately, more often than not, than not the, the better approach for us is prayers of protection, prayers of success in our work. But either way, no matter what, the first instinct should always be to go to God. So we saw it in Ezra too, but Nehemiah, I mean, you have it there, he hears about it and he prays to God. You have this, and he prays to God. We'll see again their threats, and they pray to God. It should be our first instinct, is going to God, laying it in his hands, knowing that he is for us, as we sang earlier. Then what do they do? Verse 6, so they built the wall. They go to work diligently. And they get half of it done without much of a fuss going on. So how should we respond in the face of the opposition of jeering and taunts? 
with prayer. Not lashing out. Maybe not even responding to them, but leaving it in God's hands. And then setting our minds and hands to the work God has called us to. And we face this kind of like psychological warfare. I mean, that's what it is, right? As a whole, we're mocked for our faith in society by those with power and influence. Look at how Christians are portrayed and talked about on any sort of popular level. And it poisons the well a little bit. What they're trying to do. But even in our narrow, in our more narrow circles, in our own lives, we know what some of our unbelieving friends think, don't we? Sometimes we hedge our bets. We're quiet sometimes when we maybe shouldn't be. So that we'll avoid the taunts. We'll avoid being mocked. Avoid any relational fallout. We try to protect ourselves by not letting them really know what we think about God or that we're following Him. They'll know that we're Christians, but maybe we won't say about the ways that we know they'll disagree with. About the ways they might not like. In doing so, we often fail to be salt and light in the world is what we're called to as his people. But the truth is that we don't need to fear. We don't need to be afraid. We know that God will bring about his purposes, that he'll bring about the work to which he has called us. And when we face people opposing us with their words, when they're aiming to demoralize us, to shred our morale, to, to shame us into conformity, We can take it to the Lord. We don't have to respond in like kind, but we can call on God. Because we can recognize that it's not actually about us. It's actually about God. They're not really opposing us, they're opposing Him. They're provoking Him. And we can set our minds and our hands to the work before us. To living faithfully wherever God has each one of us. So where in your life might you be tempted to be quiet or to not do the work because of what others might say? We all probably have those areas. Think about those. Take them to the Lord. And then put yourself to work. God is for me. I don't need to be afraid. You might say it's all well and good when it's just talk. right? Sure, we don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be made fun of. But we can take that. What if there's actual danger? Physical danger to life and property even. Continue on. Sanballat, Tobiah, and then these others that all end up working together against God's people. They hear that the walls are going up despite their taunts. And again, they're angry. So they make plans to come and fight. Psychological warfare didn't work. So now they're going to get physical. 
How do the people respond? Verse 9, they pray to God, and then they implement a plan so that work can go on. This quick description summarizes it. They pray, and they plan, so they can still work. You can look easy, though, right? It's actually expanded upon there in the next few verses. They actually are affected by this. It's not like, oh, nothing's going to happen. We're good. Let's go. They're demoralized a little bit. See the drop in morale. Even though they finished half the wall, now they're echoing those taunts from before. We won't be able to get it done. They're hearing danger from the outside. Our enemies said they're going to come and kill us and stop the work. Even relatives outside the city are saying, no, come, come home, come be with us. It's safer here. Right? They're being tempted to quit. So after setting this guard, Nehemiah deals with this. He looks at the nobles, officials, the people, and he reminds them of the truth. They have no need to fear these enemies. Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. He is on our side. Remember him and fight. It's almost like what Jesus said right after warning his followers that persecution will come. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear them. Fear the great and awesome God who loves you. Jesus then continues on, and the motivation for it is, don't be afraid because you are valuable to God, and he knows every single hair on your head. We need not fear earthly enemies. We have a great God who loves us. Nehemiah will say later, will fight for us. The community also plays a role in keeping them from abandoning their task. The fact is they're in it together. They're with and for each other. Look, they're placed by clans and groups. They're put together. Nehemiah's charge to fight isn't this theological or ideological reason Though there certainly are those that he could have used. That's not what he says. He says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for each other. People hear these plots to attack them and they pray to God. And then they prepare. It's easy for us to see them, this ethnic Israel, building a literal wall and to see the confidence with, with which they should continue and even prepare to fight. But what about us? The church, it's not defor- defined by borders and bloodlines, by the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ. Things change a little bit, don't they? We aren't to build walls to separate ourselves and protect ourselves from others. If anything, we're to break down these barriers so that more can be welcomed in. So while we're not called to build a wall, we're still called in a sense to build. As God's kingdom on earth is spreading by his spirit working through his people. As we see his visible reign on earth grow, we're building. 
And as this literal temple and wall have now shifted to a spiritual temple, the church in whom he dwells, who Christ is the head, in a spiritual kingdom today, we also see this shift in the way that we fight. We're not to physically fight those who oppose Christ's kingdom now. I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm not making a statement at all about that, but about the shift from it being a nation state with an army and people to defend and fight to being a spiritual kingdom. There's a shift that happens there. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. And even in Ephesians, we do this a lot in the New Testament, but we read it as singular. Right? I'm supposed to do this. But all of that that I just read in Ephesians is plural. It's you together as God's people with and for one another even as we see the people working together here. But it can be hard, can it? It's easy to get demoralized, to take our eyes off of Christ because of what's happening around us. We hear the noise. We hear our own doubts. We hear external threats. Maybe even well-intentioned friends saying that it'll be easier if you just come home. Return to us. Will we give in to that? Or will we, will we remember that the Lord who is awesome and great and yet the one who knows the number of the hairs on our head, will we remember him and seek to stand firm? Will we establish ourselves in the faith? Will we remember that he is with us and for us? That the one who, as we've seen over these past weeks, stirs up the hearts of pagan kings for the good of his people. That he can protect those whom he loves, whom he has sent his son to redeem. He'll protect us when we face opposition. Will we remember him? Then will we be prepared to stand with and for one another? Encouraging one another, helping one another as we need, praying for each other. They prepared. What do they do now? Continue on in verses 15 to 23. So the enemies hear again that God had frustrated their plan. Notice that God is the one who did it. God frustrated it. All the people returned to their work, half working, half guarding. Plans in place for protection. Sleeping in the city to be protected. Holding weapons while they drink. Nothing is going to deter them from their mission from what God has called them to do. 
Here's the language of that last section. They returned to work. They worked on the construction. They were building the wall. Some were bearing burdens. They labored at the work. It's interesting that almost half of this chapter is just them grinding it out. But that's life, isn't it? If you want your work to be successful, you work hard at it. If you watch Shark Tank, that's what you'll hear over and over again, especially from Mark, right, Mark Cuban. You can have a great idea, you can have a good plan, but you have to put in the work. For them, it's you eat, sleep, and breathe whatever product or company you're trying to grow. You work hard. If you don't do that, probably not getting one of the sharks. We can put in the work. Knowing that God is great and awesome. Knowing that he will fight for us. And bring it to completion for his glory and for our good. Not that we'll earn his favor. Not that we'll earn his love. He's already given us that. But because he has already loved us. Hear from Paul. 500 years later. Work heartily in whatever you do. And we have the advantage of having read the box score. Right? We know, we don't know all the details, but we know where it's all headed. And be, it's because those walls were built. Like, this plays a part in redemptive history, right? The, ball, the walls here help preserve the people through whom Christ came. Jesus, the Son of God, who came and dwelt among us, the one who faced all opposition and willingly took on death for all who trust in him, who rose again from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, reigning over us by our Spirit, who is for us, who is protecting us, who is providing for us, who is meeting all of our needs, who is orchestrating history, And we know the end. God will one day restore all things. The day is coming where Christ will return. There will be a new city. A new Jerusalem. That he's preparing even now. Where there will be no temple because Christ will be with us. Its walls won't be built with stone. Built with jasper. It's gate, aren't huge chunks of wood, they're pearl. And they'll never be closed. When they needed protection here, we won't need it there. All things will be made new. It's for decoration, it's for beauty. Nothing we need to keep out. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. No more sin. No more consequences of it. All will be made right. We win. Praise God for that. If we know that outcome, if we know God's faithfulness to bring about what he has promised, ought that not change the way we live in this life? 
I mean, we still have to live. <laughs> we still live. We still face trials. Hard, hard things. Face opposition. We still need to take all of these things to God. We still need to keep moving forward by His Spirit at work in us, seeking to be faithful wherever He has us. But when we remember it, we can remember and have the hope. Paul says this light and momentary affliction is not worth being prepared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. It gives us perspective. It gives us confidence going through hard things. It need not be like watching the Packers game live. Or we get caught up in all of that. All the emotions of the game, the injuries, the bad calls, the opposition, the fact that it looks at times like we're going to lose. Where we let that affect the way that we live, the way that we approach God, the way that we work for His kingdom. It need not be like that. When we remember what's coming we remember that Christ has defeated sin and death and one day we will be with him we need not fear we can stand firm in this life despite all opposition we can respond to it by taking it to the Lord and faithfully working for his kingdom with confidence